This is the Saturday Supplement. I'm Frank Lewis. Today from Dunquin, Dunquin, the most westerly parish in Europe, we're in the Blasket Centre, under the Blaskade, that tells the story of the Blasket Islands and the tiny Irish-speaking community who lived here until the mid-20th century. Life in the Blaskets was difficult. People survived by fishing and farming, and every day involved a struggle against the elements. Emigration and decline led to the final evacuation of the Great Blasket in 1953. This island of many authors left a unique record of their life, invaluable social records and classics of Irish literature. They are both a window into the past and a fascinating resource for today. The 2.9 million upgrade of the centre in 2022 uses interactive technology to tell the many Blasket stories, visually, orally and in writing. The sounds of the sea, the bird life and the voices of the people are used to very good effect. You're offered a brief version of the story with the options of getting more and more detail and all of that in Irish and in English. At the entrance to the centre... The wall is a huge stained-glass visual map of the area, and to the left, the cafe, library, archive and administrative building. From reception, via a simulation of travelling to the island by boat, the building has a long central axis with a glass head looking directly south onto the Great Blasket. Here, huge portraits of 17 island authors hang. To the right or west of the central axis, four angular galleries, a theatre auditorium, an interpretive exhibition of Blasket Living, and other gallery shows the, and tells of the, the seaweeds, the bird and fish life, and the final gallery called Undal, which is also a meeting room and classroom. To the left, the east of the axis, three much smaller spaces. Blasket Islanders telling their stories, a huge interactive panorama map, and a, a wraparound moving picture of visiting the island. On the cliff edge, between the centre and the sea, a very different viewing platform with dramatic views of the island archipelago and the Atlantic coastline. Today's programme is recorded on July the 7th. The new, hugely absorbing Blasket Centre opened its second season on March the 1st and is open every day from 10 to 5.15 until November the 20th. Your Blasket story for later programmes, write Frank Lewis, Mangerton Road, Muckris Killarney. Email franklewismangerton at gmail.com. Text 083 300 or phone 066 7123 Our guide... The manager of the Blasket Centre, former fisherman and fishing industry leader, now with the Office of Public Works since 2018, a veteran of the fight to conserve the Great Blasket, Lurkano Kaneda, and we're joined by others as we go around, as you'll hear. So, to begin. The Blasket Centre tells of the lives of Tomás Pegg and Morish, of all of the other writers, and of everyday life in the Blaskets. Morish, O'Sullivan, Morris, O'Sullivan, Fehablinik, Foss, 20 years of growing the exciting adventures of a young boy. By the way, I should have said, we're in the centre on life in the island, Chol, the, the music, song and dance, the storytelling, the communications, the, the art school, the women's lives and, and resourcefulness. A guide to the Blasket Centre and on the island for many years, a, an All-Ireland champion storyteller, incredibly knowledgeable on the Blasket literature, particularly Tomás O'Criffin. Tomás O'Ling, you have a piece from 20 years of growing. We were across the great sound now, and there's no doubt but it would delight a sick man at that time to be looking north and south at the seabirds, hunting over the wild sea. Soon we saw a guillemot, a little way off to the south, with her young chick behind her. Above them was a great black-backed gull, and he swooping down at the chick. 
Every time he swooped, the chick would dive and go astray on him. And every time the chick came up again, the gull would make another swoop. Wish him, isn't the gull a treacherous bird, said Padraig. Not at all, said Paddy Jim. Isn't he trying to fill his belly? And isn't it the same thing you're trying to do yourself with a pollock on the wild bank to the south? On the plaza in front of the, the main door, brief pieces uh, from different writers carved into the flagstones, guided the Blasket Centre and on the island, an accomplished Gaelic footballer with Dingle and Nevogue Oarswoman, a passionate nature lover, Shelian Nilinchik. It was composed by Seán O'Donleitha, the precursor to Thomas O'Grahan. This refers to a crew from the island that partook in Venture Gata and won. On Gulliver Kuntus or Beauty Dasn alone. The Honig she kun go kumha o vala on kashlon. Tharing she clu le cru ma far er enjoyg. Iskanerum gan kua girlalo a hog she on ross. Morish's story of climbing down the cliffs at Kionduv at the southwestern tip of the island, catching puffins, breaking their necks, putting them in a bag around his neck and bringing them home to stew them. All of the excitement in the life of a young man whose entire world was on the Great Blasket. Guide at the Blasket Centre and on the island, sports broadcaster with T.G. Cahar, a great man with a story, Connell O'Keevan. His first journey into the island, he would have been born in the island but would have spent his early years in an orphanage in Dingle. That was around 1904, so he would come back to the island around 1910 and it was his description of seeing the Naivogue upside down and thinking it was a giant beetle. Um, I suppose he'd never seen it and then he saw four men getting underneath it and the beetle was moving. But everything about the book is an adventure. It was one that the islanders loved more than any other one because I suppose when we all look back at our youth, just like Murish has done, in his book we get rose tinted glasses every summer was fine every adventure was better than it probably was but he sums it all up really really well in the book and it was the one book that the islanders really really loved because it was the one book that was full of absolute positivity it's a book though that particularly any young person can relate to can't they because it is all fun and adventure and doing things like catching the puffins and so on if you were to compare it to any book, something like Huckleberry Finn over in America, every day is an adventure. But for the young people, there would have been an adventure every day on the island. You get out of school, there isn't much to do but hanging around with your friends. You're talking mm -hmm. about like no TV, no radio, no computers. Yeah. You're down in Troy Vaughan, you're hunting for rabbits, you're hunting for puffins. You had the freedom of the island. It's probably like a great big playground at the time. Anyone who spoke of their early years in the island absolutely loved life. As I said already, the Blasket Centre has a long central axis with a, a glass head looking south directly on the Great Basket. Here, huge portraits of 17 island authors. Tomás, the design of the centre is unique. The building itself probably is creating its own tradition in a way. It's here 30 years, but the architect, when he read the books, probably sensed, although these were Christian people, he possibly sensed a Celtic background between the lines mm. and the central axis to me represents the Dinka Peninsula there's a huge amount of ohm stones now ohm would be the earliest form of writing and the rooms the notches on the ohm stone you read upwards there's somebody important buried underneath so like, these side areas these would kind be of the notches, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of it. so he's trying to replicate that also the contour of the Dunquin parish and fields and the landscape he brings into it 
And finally, I think that there's a third dimension that you're looking across at the Blasket Sound, that's the body of water between the mainland and the island, and the hall, when the sunlight breaks through, they constitute waves, and that's why the fall is on the hall. Shillian. Just the other day I was looking through Sean Fast Tom O'Carna's book, Filler and Arable Vaughan, and much like Marish, Sean Fast Tom was a right old rogue. When you come into the centre and down at the very, very end, you can hear him speaking, and because there's a documentary featuring Queenie on Blasquead, you can hear Sean Fast Tom speaking, but in reading the book, he speaks exactly as he writes, and it's a wonderful achievement to be able to convey his natural way of being in the writing. There's one story in particular that he mentioned. It was about the last bull that was on the island. They rarely kept bulls on the island because it was far too treacherous and it was far too much bother to be keeping them because they'd get a bit loony. But because they all had cows, if they wanted to have milk, of course, they'd have to bring them to the mainland mm. for, to meet with the bull. And that was a very dangerous task. So rather than going through all that bother, they decided to bring a bull to the island. But the bull got a bit rowdy, so they brought him out to Beganish, which is an island just off of the Great Basket. But because the bull was getting lonely, he took it upon himself to swim across that very dangerous such of water. Michael Phelps wouldn't get a look in, and to come into the beach on the island. So you can just imagine Sean Fastham's father looking out in the morning, no sign of the bull. He was wondering, oh my gosh, what's yeah, actually happening? Yeah, yeah. But then to go down to the beach and there's your bull. So it happened two nights in a row. So they decided to put an old donkey out in the island to keep the bull company, and that kept him settled. Isn't Fantastic. that one of the features of the writing generally? It mm. is that it, it is really oral folk literature oh, written yes. down. You know, it was the, yeah. the word of the people, is how they told their stories. It all started with the language, which was so rich and pure, and yeah. then that became the literature. And then from the literature, now we have this wonderful legacy in the building. Connell, it was 17 portraits of Blasket uh, writers painted by a, a range of different artists. H- have you a favourite? Sean Fetztown O'Carran, I really liked the image of him. I would remember Sean Fetztown, even though I was very young when he did pass away, but I would have been at school with his granddaughter and we would have been back there playing and stuff and Shaley like said it well there. He was a rogue, he was a character even in the later years and there's no doubt about that. So I like that picture there. Mm. As for writings, it's not from one of the lesser writings. It's the one book that I really like is Tomaso Crehan's Dean Shamachus of Lascaed mm-hmm. and it's basically every single place name and how it got got its name. I think it's nearly the richest and most vibrant of all the books because it tells you how a place got its name and once you understand that and know that you can tell tell people so much about it. It's a tradition that they've taken on here in Dunkhain as well. They have one Loganim Khurunkhain place names of Dunkhain and where the names came from. Tomas the story is unique. It's it's a wonderful story of people surviving against all odds. Mm. Shaley, and before we end this section, explain one thing to me. Shaley, where did the name come from? Thank you, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> it's a unique Irish name. It's an amalgamation of different family members. So my granduncle was Seamus. He was a missionary over in Africa, so that's the Shea. Also, my grandmother's name was Kay, so again, Shea. My, my lovely mother's name is Julie, so that's the Lee. So Shaley, and then my other grandmother's name is Anne, so Shaley Anne. <laughs> was your mother made it up, was it? Yes. <laughs> Tomas, uh, Shailian and Connell will be talking again later. Thanks indeed for the moment. Bring his toes around the lore and one's on the last The Saturday Supplements 
with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. Bring his cows around the Lord and one's on Blasked Wood. Today, the 2.9 million upgrade of the Blasket Centre in Dunchin at the tip of the Dingle Peninsula. Now at the large scale and extensively interactive huge wall map of the Great Blasket, I said at the beginning of the programme, life on the Blasket was difficult. People survived by fishing and farming and every day involved a struggle against the elements. Fishing was the mainstay of the island economy. All Blasket Islanders would have described themselves as fishermen. The Blasket women were in constant fear that their men wouldn't come home. Lurkan. Sharlock Crehan, the boss of Crehan's son, wrote a wonderful book, describes how the people who came from the mainland to settle on the island were farmers and they didn't know much about fish at all Mm -hmm. and that it was only as the succeeding generations first of all began to as you had described it hand line for fish they fished for barnacles or limpets off the rocks and steadily then moved into net fishing netting for whitefish or, or long lining as regards the lobsters and the crayfish, they had no knowledge of them at all. They did come up in nets, but they were thrown overboard. They did find out from visiting fishermen that these were highly prized and highly valuable. But it was only after the famine that they began to fish these actively. Lobsters were never part of their diet or craze either on the island that we know of. Connell O'Keefe on farming, enough tillage to provide potatoes and some vegetables for the house, sheep farming, a a cow or two to provide for the house. Life was a struggle there. There would have only been about 60 acres to the north of the island that would have been good for growing vegetables, which isn't a lot if you're trying to feed a whole population. But it would have been relying on the fish. Tomás O'Crehan tells us in the Island Man that he was out walking one day up in the hill and he looks out and he spots a school of mackerel and quick-thinking Tomás jumps into Nivogo, one of the other men, and lo and behold, when they hauled the nets later, there was 5,000 mackerel in each one. And we have to realise as well that everything that the islanders got was given to them by nature. But what happened for a large part of the winter? They relied on salted fish that they had and vegetables that they would have kept. They would have eaten birds. The Mosso Creighton tells us that they ate seal. Tasted like pork, he said. I'm sure they would have eaten anything to survive because that was the world back then. More than anything, it was survival. And trying to do it on the rock three miles off the mainland with absolutely no resources, it's really remarkable. Mara, you're the chairman of Corkham and Dunqueen. The biggest project that we have at the moment is building a playground for the young children in the community. We're at the stage where we have the site, courtesy of the OPW, and we have the planning permission, courtesy of the County Council. And our job now is to fundraise. We have to gather, I think it's around €40,000. A lot of money to gather in a, in a it, it small is. community. The Dunquin diaspora is all over the world, so we're going to be contacting, <laughs> I'd say, each and every one of them. Are there other projects? Lolly Gubnet, it's Pattern Day, and that's celebrated every year. And this year we celebrated the 150th anniversary of Peg Sears's christening. Different events. We really like to bring the community together. 
Everything is done through the medium of Irish and we are so lucky that we have this facility here that... What use do you make of it? What use don't we make of it? At the beginning of the year now we had a table quiz and we used the area above there by the restaurant. We had a brilliant night. We had music, we had song, we had... So it's used for community events oh, yes, on a regular yes. basis? Yes, yes. And the school uses it for their plays as well and the school was celebrating the 50th anniversary of their yeah. reopening this yeah. year and there was a wonderful night here in the theatre there were people like lovely facility the little theatre here isn't it oh it's amazing yeah. and the atmosphere that was there the night of the celebration was amazing what do Dunqueen people make of the centre apart from using it as a community facility but what's on here and what's shown here I'd say it's a positive feeling towards it now. Initially, there were issues around the building, that it should look like this or that it should look like that. But I think all that's gone by the wayside now and people are enjoying the space because if ever you have visitors come to you, you, you always have some place to bring them. And I'm not aware of anybody who hasn't been impressed by it. You know, Indeed. it is wonderful. Yeah. As we've been standing here, uh, Lurkan, I've been looking behind you and the spotlights have been coming on. Text has been coming up uh, on different aspects. There's a, a photograph over there. The, we're showing the, the six main islands and you're showing the, the mainland beside that. It's a very interactive display. The idea behind this was to give people a sense that the Blasken Islands is part of an archipelago mm -hmm. and that all the other islands as well as the, the, the main island itself, were all part of the story. There's also here another level of information to do with all that. So there's uh, a council here in front and they can get up more deeper information if they exactly. want to. Exactly. If you saw that here gives a kind of, I think, a very strong kind of graphic uh, illustration of the islands and the context of them. But there are levels of information and that's to cater for this idea which is very much lies behind the way the centre is laid out mm. is that people access information to the degree to which is of interest to them. Looking at Inishvikalaan and say the, the uh, connection with Seamus Heaney for example mm. and the given note which was inspired by Port the Bukhi, mm. the deer on the island, you know Charlie Howe's involvement on the island. We have people here, here who come two, three, four times. I can imagine, even while you were talking there, all of the routes from the Blasket to various places, including Carsevine and, and all sorts of places on the mainland. Well, that's an extraordinary thing, actually, which that highlights, is that the distances that these people rode, those Naivoga, yeah. were extraordinary. I mean, if you take the return trip to the Skelligs, where they would have been hunting for gannets, or to Carsevine, or to Dingle, or out around the islands... The seas, it's fine in benign times, but even at the best of times, it's no wonder they won regattas because they lived their lives pulling those oars. Did I come across a story one time of the Blasket Islanders coming to the Skellig and more or less killing all of the gannets that were on the little Skellig? These were people who were surviving against the odds. The gannets were part of what they needed for their, for their lives. Dennis Vickalon, Purton Abuki, one of the dailies was out there one night with his wife. She'd gone to bed and he's sitting by the fire and he heard this music outside from a banshee, a fairy woman, or as the good people as they used to say back there, and he couldn't get the tune out of his head and 
picked up the fiddle a few days later and composed Burton the Bouquet, which is, I suppose it tells you a lot about the islanders as well. People who wouldn't have been able to read music, write music, but they certainly were able to compose it. Yeah. And I suppose it's a lesson for us all with the human brain. It's the greatest computer of them all, that nothing is impossible. That's something that I always think about the islanders, what they've achieved by not merely just surviving on the island, but what they achieved in the world of literature, the world of music, Amazing. against all the odds. Yeah, that's the story that we really celebrate. Thank you all indeed. We're going to move on. And now to play us out, from Beauty on the Lawn, music and song of the Blasket Islands, Sean Fell, Sean Odin Hleve, on Melodion, with a polka, the Barren Rocks of Aden. <laughs> Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. Bring his toes around the lore and wands and blasked Today from the Blasked Island Centre that reopened a year ago after a, a two-year 2.9 million upgrade. Today's programme is recorded on July the 7th. Your comments for future use. Text 083 300 or 4066 now, Catty Cairns, sculptor of the Women of the Well, four life-size figures depicting a group of blasket women gathered around a well to collect water and socialise. It looks a bit like a scene from Brian Fields' Dancing at Lunasa, a place at which to remember Peg Sayers. Sheila, you're going to read a piece about preparation for Christmas by Peg. A week before Christmas, the housewives had set aside the biggest and best potatoes for Christmas Eve. All the island boats would go to Dingle Town and bring home provisions for Christmas. Not alone did they bring the Christmas fair, but they brought provisions for the two following months. I often saw them with a motorboat coming to the island, carrying the Christmas provisions. Flour, meat, tea, sugar, jam, butter and everything imaginable that was required for the festive season. They got shoes the young boys, a dress or a bib for the girls, shoes for the old ladies, there was a present of some kind for everybody in the house to mark the feast of Christmas. 
It was a hard life. Former teacher in Chile and current chair of Corcoman Dunhuin. Her father, Joe Daly, Joseph O'Dalig, was one of the leading folklore collectors with Commission Bellish and Hayden, the Irish Folklore Commission. Marabani Oraku. Women always have a hard life. <laughs> they had a lot to do and they had no facilities, they had no equipment apart from their own two hands. And all their provisions were put on a dresser in the houses and they were very proud of that dresser. And yeah. they looked after each and every cup and plate and bowl that was on it. Librarian and archivist at the Blasket Centre who has helped countless scholars and helped members of the Blasket diaspora to trace their Blasket roots. A daughter of a Blasket Islander, Mirren Nikarna, like others of her generation, Peg was educated through English Strange, wasn't it, yes, that, that yeah, people yeah, whose yeah. first language was Irish was were, Irish, were yeah, being taught yeah. to English? But it was very important for the islanders that their children learned English because they knew they were going to leave and that if they didn't have the English language that they wouldn't succeed in another country. So you're saying that the Basket Islanders probably welcomed that? and They they, they had a grow for their own language. They spoke a very rich form of Irish on the island, so much so that it, it drew visiting scholars like Indeed. Robin Flower and George yeah. Thompson to the island. But they knew from a practical side of it that the children needed to have mm. some English. And Peg never learned to write in Irish, so how did she manage? She depicted her stories to her son, Michal O'Gaheen. He wrote down all of her stories. Old woman's reflections. Yeah. The, the women at the well, Mara, what might they have talked about? Everything and anything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the well on the island was a very important place both in terms of practical point of view there was no running water we're blessed with running water in our houses today but because the trickle of the well was quite slow it provided a prime opportunity for them all to come together as they were cleaning their children and gathering the water mm. and to have a good old chin wag that statue that you're referring to inspired by Cathy Carman it was actually Tomás O'Grahin who wrote about it in his book Island Crosstalk or Oligar na Hinnishask Ireland in it the whole book is just his observations of day to day life in the island as he was passing by the, by the well, he heard all the women chattering away. But because they were speaking so quickly and intensely, he couldn't make out what they were saying. Yeah. So in spite of the fact that they were speaking Irish, he said they may as well have been speaking in French. From the vast collection of traditional tales, songs and customs uh, dictated by Peg to, to Robin Flower, Kenneth Jackson, Joseph O'Dalig and others, a fraction of which feature in her Shkelta Ol Masked, and the recent two books uh, by Boo Alamquist and Padig O'Haley, Boo Alamquist told me that Folklore Commission had the makings of nine books from those recordings. Endless. And I'm sure if Peg was alive, she'd still be making up more. <laughs> <laughs> You're suggesting that she created the stories? Oh, she would have used her own creativity to enhance every story that she ever heard. Is there a story that comes to mind? Is there? No, uh, I do know that she had even different versions of the one story, insofar as if she, uh, it depended on the listener. If she was uh, telling the story to someone whose Irish wasn't great, mm -hmm. she'd have one version and... I suppose we were lucky that was my father was um, transcribing the stories from her and she knew that he understood every word she was saying so she was able to tell the story in its true form. It wasn't yeah. watered down yeah. and it wasn't sanitised. Right. <laughs> that was one of the difficulties, wasn't it, that the material that was published afterwards was sanitised to a fair It was, and that would be one of the reasons why an awful lot of people have turned against that book that was used in schools because they had a picture of a holy Joe in their minds, yeah. <laughs> whereas the peg that my father knew was a rogue. 
She was a character. She was fun to be with. You were loath to leave her house at the end of the night. Yeah. It was just all fun all the way. Has the unexpurgated or the any any edition now been published with the full story as it was told originally? That I don't know. Yeah. No. No, no, I've been told from the background there. Shelly-Anne, a, a story from your own experience of visitors to the centre or the island? It varies. We get a very broad array of visitors to both the centre and the island. With the centre, it's many people that are touring around Slayhead and they just wander away and they might not have known about it previously. But especially this year, since we've had the refurbished exhibition, people come up to the desk and they're just in awe. They're just so thankful that they called in because it's a total immersive experience. They really feel it. You may be able to hear the water in the background, but once you enter into the exhibition, it's a total immersion into Ireland life. And as you're coming down, you're engaging with people. Because we're looking at a culture and we're celebrating a culture, people are getting to know the islanders. And as you're going down, you can hear them speaking, like in the room, Gloria Gisca. Mm. You can hear them telling the stories that were the foundation of the literature that was to come. But to be able to hear them tell it and hear the humour and then to go down and hear about how the decline of the island came about many people resonate with that especially people that might be of Irish descent from America mm. and many people come up and they say oh, they brought a tear to their eye because they can resonate with that story yeah. they're thinking of their own ancestors who had to leave their home places to go to America mm. It forms a connection with Irish culture and then internationally as well because the Irish diaspora is all over the world. I have a close connection to the island where my grandparents came from the island and one of the stories my family is known for is that my grandmother's brother Seanine died on the island in January of 1947. He was 24 years old and he died of meningitis. At the time, the island was stormbound, so they couldn't alert the mainland that this had fallen out on the island. And it took them nearly three days to get the weather to settle, to get from the island onto the mainland. And at that stage as well, on the island, there wasn't many uh, young men left out there, but four of the young men of the island that were left took to the water and rowed across to Dunquin. It took them three days where in the end they had to get the Valencia lifeboat to bring the coffin out to the island and bring the body into Dingle. So that was one of the deciding factors as well, I think, why the island was evacuated. They just realised how isolated they were and they had no help at all when it came to something like that. Maura? The centre, it's like being on the island, really. The atmosphere is recreated. There's a particular atmosphere in the island that I have never felt or experienced anywhere else. Perhaps maybe Spinalonga which was the island of lepers uh, over in uh, Crete. But it has, I think, this centre here embodies everything that is good in the island. From the minute you walk in, as you noticed yourself earlier on, even the entrance goes downhill. It's not flat. Nothing in the island is flat. It's focused on the island. As you come in, you hear the water. We hear it there in the background. You, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't escape it when you're on the island. Yeah. It's part of the yeah. the environment and that's yeah. it. Then there just everything has been brought to life. I think uh, there's a lot of technology here now that allows you to revisit the things of the past, the people of the past. You can hear their voices, you can see their pictures, you can sense them almost. Mm. There's a particular piece of art down there in a, an Ivogue and there are three men it's in it. It's made in wire, isn't it? It's made from wire mesh yeah. of some yeah. sort yeah. and it's like three ghosts, but they're not gone. 
the movement you can, you can see the movement in it, it is, can't you? It's it wonderful. It's the most wonderful piece of art I've ever laid my eyes on. Yeah. It's amazing. You're great. I think we're going to be talking to you all later. So thanks a million for the moment. Ring his toes around the door and one's a lasked The Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. Ring his toes around the door and one's a lasked Today, the Blasket Centre in Dunqueen at the tip of the Dingle Peninsula. Now, emigration and evacuation. We're in a little gallery here that, in picture and otherwise and in chart, tells the story of people leaving the island over the years. The Blasket authors write of, of hardship and heartbreak, but they also tell of happy, contented people. Even emigration and evacuation ha- had a lighter side. Emigration is reflected in the books. Maurice Sulawan wrote in 20 Years of Growing. Next day, Maura wrote to her aunt for the passage money. Kate Pegg was constantly coming to the house now, and she and Maura talking of nothing but America. They would run across to the wall where pictures from Springfield were hanging. Oh, Kate would say, we will go into that big building the first day, Maura. Then the two of them would run out on the floor, dancing for joy. Letters from the Great Blasket by Eilish Nihulawan. I was inside with an old widow a few nights ago, that grey woman you used to see in the middle of the village, always outdoors when you were passing. Well, she had three lovely rooms in her house. Her children are all in America, only one son that's a man here, but not in her house. Imagine her sitting in the corner alone, thinking and looking at her empty house in which her grandchildren should be playing, and she knows that she will never see her dear ones again and you can hear the wind blowing outside. In Lohna Anir, Shauna Criffin wrote, The eldest girl always went first because she'd have spent a year or two working in Dingle or somewhere in the countryside near it or some place she could earn a few pence. She was always anxious to go. She'd also get help from her parents at home and the fare wasn't a whole lot at the time. I think you could get from Cove to New York for six pounds. When she went to America and thought of her brothers in one another's way at home with nothing to do and nowhere to earn a penny, only sit in the corner, she'd send the fare over to them one by one as soon as she had earned it. And when the first fellow went over, he'd return the money he was after getting from Maude or Court or whoever, and she'd then send that home to yet another member of the family. That's how the youth and vigour of the islanders were destroyed. They went to America. There was a decline in population from 1841 to 1851, from 153 to 97, due in large measure to the effect of the famine and emigration to America. Michal, in 1893, the Congested Districts Board began a programme of improvements which included building a breakwater and a new slipway. The population rose to 145 by the 1901 census. From 1891, it started to increase again. In 1911, there were 160 people. And again, in 1920, there were 180. How long did they continue to rise? In 1926, the population had fallen to 143 people, so mm. the decline started in the 20s. 
Well, in 1911, 45% of the population were women, but by 1936, that percentage had dropped to 42% and to approximately 29% in 1946. When immigration started, when they started going to Springfield, Massachusetts, there was a lot of factory work and it, this was why the women started leaving before the men. And then they were getting parcels sent to the island of clothes, photographs, money and letters from family members about how well they were doing in the States and that they were living the American dream. So this was drawing a lot of young people from the island to immigrate to Springfield. And there was no marriages on the island, there was no children being born. And then eventually it led to them not having enough able-bodied men to fish and farm the land. Maraith Kearney, who was the last surviving Plaskett Islander living in America now. She's just turned 100 years of age. A few years ago, I was asking her about her life on the island. She left maybe when she was about 19 or 20. And she said, it was an awful place, she said. I couldn't wait to get out of it. She said, you have to realise, she said, we had no water, we had no sewage, we had no shops, we had no nothing. She said, the best thing that I ever did was come to America. I mean, she was very proud and very nostalgic and is about her family and her life on the island, but had and has that pragmatism that they needed to have. The American dream, they went to America, and it's a dream that tends to be romanticised as well, though, doesn't it? I mean, for the early years in America, life must have been awful as well. They went to a place where there were familiar people, number one. They were looked after and somewhere found to live and get them a job. Some of them went and came back without having got a job. I mean, those people who, who, who went to America in the, during the Depression, for example, had a, an exceptionally tough time. They were the bottom rung of the bottom rung of the ladder. Really, the, the last 50, 60 years, when life has become good for the Irish in America, Blasket Islanders included, that that contact has re-established in the way that it has, it was really only with a certain prosperity that that was possible. The first visit I ever made to Springfield was in 1980 as a very callow youth. We spent the weekend of the 4th of July with my Kearney. But what my Kearney wanted us to do, and what we did, was that we went fishing mackerel fishing with his three brothers. So four of them, Blasket Islanders, went out and we went out on this charter boat, 50 or 60 people on it. I would say 56 of those people were there for a day out. Yeah. The Blasket Islanders were not there for a day out. They were there to kill fish. <laughs> and they killed more fish than the rest of the boat put together and it was brought home and it was put in the freezer. Michal, on the 17th of November 1953, on the official date of evacuation, there were 21 people living on the island, four women who were getting on in years, and 17 men. Only six of the most able-bodied persons, who happened to be all men, were able to uh, evacuate the island that day. The weather was kind of bad, misty, and the sea was a bit rough, and the, the fishing trawler that uh, Mike Brosnan had could not land people in Dunquin. And, and all this was witnessed by Wally McGrath, God rest him, from the Cork Examiner, and by Louis McMonagall, who was uh, a great photographer, and the iconic photograph that he took that day of the sixth blasket people Behind your landing there, yeah. in yeah. 
Dingle Harbour yeah. instead of Dunqueen. And uh, apparently they, they went out there, uh, the six able-bodied men went out to Dunqueen to claim to get the keys of the houses uh, that the Land Commission had built for them because the family emigrated to, in 1953, up to County Kildare and they left a lot of land behind them. There was some sort of trading with the Land Commission. So the Land Commission built four houses in Dunqueen for the Blasked Islanders and they acquired two more houses, I think, maybe three, actually three houses. So the Blasked people left the island in dribs and drabs after that. By the way, the six able-bodied men went back to the island the day after, the day after that. And the last family, the O'Sullivans, left in November 1954, so the 17th of November. Murden, all of this is very well recorded in the literature yes. on the islands and from the islands, so there's, there's a unique record of all of that. We have in our archives a lot of the photographs that Micheál was talking about there, mm. taken by McMonagall, that gives a really good picture of the day that the island was evacuated. Clear photographs of them loading their belongings onto the boat and leaving the island. And the whole contact with America, again, even some of the more recent books deal with that. The book that Micheál O'Carna wrote tells a lot about the events leading up to the evacuation. Before we go to a break on the 10 o'clock news, to play us out from Beauty on Elon, music and song of the Blasket Islands, Anya Kesh de Lihe sings Raitse Ismakheti. Don't 
Ring is close around the Lord and once on Blasket Wood. Today, the hugely upgraded Blasket Centre. Welcome back. Today's programme was recorded on July the 7th. Your comments for future use. Text 083 300 333 Email franklewismangerton at gmail.com or you can write Frank Lewis, Gillon, Mangerton Road, Muckras, Killarney. Now to the right and to the left, moving pictures of a, of a great rolling sea as, as you come down here, creating the feeling of being on a navog on our, our way to the basket with the long central axis that we've talked about. On the left, as I said earlier, portraits of 17 basket writers, and on the right, opposite each portrait, a brief written introduction to the writer. There will be an audio guide uh, at various points to give the opportunity for foreign visitors to access the narrative in their own language. We're now, we're looking out at Michael Quayne's because of the storm outside, we're indoors. We're looking at Michael Quayne's life-sized stone sculpture of perhaps the greatest of the island writers, Tomás O'Cliffin, leaning into the wind, holding on to his hat. Tomás? This is an interpretive centre. So when you look at Tomás O'Cliffin, you'll see a typical of a storm day on the Blasket Island, but have a second look. And he's protecting something else. On his left side there, under his coat, there's this manuscript, hidden, and that's really what he's protecting. He's given us wonderful, wonderful records of life on the Blasket Island. Tomás was born in 1854, the youngest of three sons and five daughters. He lived all of his life on the Blasket. He attended the Island National School, but had no tuition in his native language. Tomás, he was taught to read and write in English, again, as, as we heard earlier in relation to Morrish, and they weren't taught to write in Irish in the school. He self-learned how to read and write in his own language. He was a great teacher of Irish. Very eminent people came to learn Irish from he, him. The first to come into the island to learn Irish was Cal Mastrander, and it's Mastrander who advised Robin Flower. And later on, the guy who advised Tomás to write would have been Biano Callig. A good Clarny man, <laughs> who came in 1917. Yeah. And outside here, at the entrance, there's a wonderful plaque. And it tells him that how they would have encouraged him to write. And he would have, of course, re uh, replied, I'm not a writer. I'm a fisherman. I'm a stonemason. I'm a part-time farmer. And, they, and you're 30 years too late. There was a Dunleavy guy here, a poet who imagined he couldn't read or write in the Irish language, but he could compose poetry. That is some achievement, to compose 20 verses of poetry. And was any of that kept, any of it? Tomás O'Keefe recorded many of them because he had to, because he was afraid of the poet, that the poet might compose a, a had... verse about himself and maybe <laughs> he'd be the fun of the village, you know. <laughs> you have a piece there from the beginning of the Alamed. I was born on St. Thomas's Day in the year 1836. I can recall being at my mother's breast, but I was four years old before I was weaned. I am the scrapings of the pot, the last of the litter. That's why I was left so long on the breast. I was a spite child, too. Historian and tour guide, Tyg O'Quillan, Tim Collins, 
What are the things you find visitors respond to here? There's no group of islands in Western Europe that there has been as much written about and documented about as there has been about the Blasket Islands, about its people, its folklore, its culture and literature. So it encompasses all that in, in one building. You can just pay a visit and in maybe two hours get a great overview of the island and the island life that's passed. Reno Kallig was a key influence. How, how did the, all of these come to come to the Great Blasket? preceded by a Celtic revival, a Gaelic league, Gaelic revival, and people wanted to be in the field, an actual field, where the living language would have been heard. How they encouraged him, they gave him books, and two books stood out when he was talking about trying to write something. One was An Iceland Fisherman by Pierre Loti, and the other My Childhood by Gorky. He would maintain that nobody would be interested in my story. Out on a 1,500-acre island, nobody would be interested in a Gaelic-Irish story. But when he saw that probably that these were translated and they had become bestsellers at the time, that really was the key to get him to write. He was primarily a storyteller. A lot of the people you have coming, Tim, are, are particularly people interested in archaeology, people interested in the antiquity, interested in the heritage and so on. What do you think they bring away from here or from the island itself? The most abiding memory is um, their impression of the way of life the people had way back in the 18th and 19th century, which was very well depicted here. A lot of them that I'd meet would be um, Irish-Americans and they can start to link into it through their own DNA and ancestry. They visualise their parents or grandparents coming from a place like this. It's a touchstone for them. Tomás O'Criffin is buried not very far away. He is buried above in, uh, near the church in Dondrine. His headstone was made in by the famous sculptor Seamus Murphy and it's depicted as a beehive type old clochon which again brings back to the medieval thoughts that this fella had or this man had and it's modern looking as well towards its fish there's a fish sculpture in it as well yeah. it's simple but beautiful and that's possibly the way he would have wanted it it is a tremendous attraction tim isn't it i mean the 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 whole idea of our heritage the island itself furthermore it's on the the west the most western point of uh, ireland it's the most western point of europe as well was Tomás unique? Was there anybody else like him, or was he symptomatic of a whole category of people? He probably was. He would have been nicknamed on the island when he was going to school as uh, Donald Scholar because his father was Donald, Tomás Ronald. So he was nicknamed uh, Sclóide Ronald. So he probably was. But the king would have... I, he mentions the king a lot in, in his writings. The king to The explain. king of the island yeah. would, would, would have been a classmate of his... And there are contemporaries. Maybe there's slight difference of opinion as well in the stuff, but he, he mentions all of that. But generally speaking, the islanders that I knew, their speech was pure poetry, prose poetry, what's described as prose poetry. Yeah, yeah. One instance Tomás talks about is there's a hypochondriac on the island and he never goes fishing or anything like that. And when he sees them going fishing, there's a huge cyst on the back of his neck. And he says, well, for you, you're able to go fishing. And one of the neighbours uh, replies, he says, I think your roguery, he says, starts with the cyst on, your back, on, the, on the back of your neck. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, the roguery has been bred in the back, in the cyst. Because you want, want it, again, going back to what would have been beliefs, I don't call them superstitious uh, as such, 
beliefs, you never, never tell a person who's going to see that it's well for you, because obviously he's in danger, that person is in danger, even the sunniest day of the candlest day. So that kind of prose poetry, all of them had that. And it comes from communication, really, but I suppose in this global society now, we're all pressing buttons, but there's no oral communication as such. It's It's the complete opposite to what was here, because that was the total communication. And the first book that was published, Thomas Oligar Nahinishe. Oligar, it's not kind Nahinishe. Oligar, it's been translated as Island Crosstalk. But I feel that it could, it could easily have been Island Banter, where you ping pong with your talk, you're scoring points off each other. There was a ship marooned off the uh, Blasket Islands uh, on the, uh, I think, to the 27th of August 1916, a steamer, the SS Quebra. Was uh, coming from New York, heading for Liverpool, and it had a large cargo of flour, watches, ammunition, steel, and that type of thing. It was grounded here off the Blaskets. The captain says he was shunted in there by uh, Russian submarines, but I think that was a, a bogus story. Yeah. I think he lost his bearings in the fog and then didn't take proper readings. But the, the upshot of it was there was a large lot of stuff washed up in the, in the beach, close to the Blaskets. And one of those things was a box of watches. And all the kids in the Blasket Islands had watches. <laughs> they'd be wearing these going to school, yeah. and they'd be asking one to the other, what time is it by your quebra? Instead of a lolix, <laughs> for the quebra. <laughs> talks about things being preordained or predestined. And uh, this is a story where when they would be fishing off the rocks, off uh, reefs, no, no net fishing. It wasn't in his time, it was before. And he, uh, there's the same boat, and uh, there's a guy who's late, and they set off anywhere without him, because the fisherman will have to watch tides, currents, all of that wind. And then they discover just not far off, they're heading for Inish Twishkert. The mast is missing, so they return for the mast. In the meantime, your man is at the pier. He comes with them fishing. They put each person on a reef, and then they would come back when the spring tide is coming, and your man is missing. He relates this to death. When death comes calling, there is no escape. It wasn't for the mast that they returned. It was for the man, because death will follow you into a man's hole. This man suffered a lot. He says in his book he had ten children. On the parish register, there's twelve and he survived all but two. And, st- and his wife died, and he still he carries on. Bring his clothes around the lore and one's on The Saturday Supplements with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. Bring his clothes around the lore and one's on Today, the 2.9 million upgraded the Brasket Centre in Dune Queen at the tip of the Dingle Peninsula. We're now in the library, the archive area, where Brasket people, their descendants and others began bringing items for safekeeping by permanent loan. This material included manuscripts, books, artefacts from the island and various audiovisual material. The library has had a number of major contributions. We have notes from Leslie Matson, who did large amount of work on the genealogy and the people of the Great Blasket Island and he also wrote the book Maney so we have all of his reference notes. 
We've got Cartland Radio in the Gaeltachta, which the library purchased, and that's got a huge amount of interviews and a lot of them with the Blasket Island people and giving detailed accounts of their life on the island, what it was like living there, fishing the land, a lot of stories, and also some interviews of the islanders when they had immigrated to Springfield. As well, we've got probably the most important asset, the Blasket Library, which we have a collection of books written by the islanders and about the island. And you've got the three main autobiographies as well that have been translated into a lot of different languages. Have you much original material? We've got a lot of first editions and we've got a lot of handwritten manuscripts by Tommaso Crahan, Mauricio Sullivan and Peg. You've got major collections as well from people like the O'Dolig family. Carol O'Dolig, his library was donated to the centre. That consists of a lot of history and law books, Irish books, and we've got a lot of books on geography, Celtic languages, folklore as well. And there was collections of George Thompson's. Yeah, Margaret Alexu, his daughter, donated George Thompson's library to the centre as well with a lot of his material and research and a lot of photographs that and he had taken in his time on the island. And also Ray Stegles, who with his wife yes, wrote a book. Yes, we were recently donated all Blasket-related material from Ray Stegles' library as well and a lot of notes as well and letters that he had been corresponding with Blasket Islanders. And you even got a large collection of material from Connemara. From Chloe or there was over 300 books donated to the library. How did they come to come here rather than go to... Well, I suppose some of the Blasket books as well were through Chloe or Connachta, so there was a connection there. Tim? Everything is linked in. The exhibition and the library and the whole area of Dunquin. Another aspect is that you've got a lot of history out there in the bay as well with the sinking of the Spanish Armada ship in 1580. And then you had the Battle of Dune and Orr on the other side of Smurrick Harbour in 1588. Lorcan, how, how much use is made of the library? Merlin is very busy. There's a lot of people who are on basically making inquiries about genealogy and we do have visiting scholars here probably not enough use in terms of resource the space as you can see for all that Merton has described as in it is very tight and sometime in the future that's something that we should address but you would have people coming here on bursaries or scholarships Fulbright scholars over the years people doing research on particular aspects and that might be drawing out from the books or from the writing of the girl of the Cartland or when it comes to the island and the story of the island itself from the numerous sources which are kept here. So it's an aspect which the public wouldn't be terribly well aware of. It was an incredible resource to have in terms of designing the new exhibition that we've just put in to have all this material I mean it was a huge job of work of just reading a lot of it but representing that and representing it authentically and faithfully and in some sort of a representative way what this was the nerve centre of everything that's been done there's lots of islands and there's lots of places which have stories which are not entirely dissimilar mm. what is unique about this is the multi-layered multi-faceted recording of that it's, from yeah. within the island community yeah. themselves in their own language so it wasn't a bunch of anthropologists coming from the outside in which is at the heart of it and then a whole series of 
commentaries and books which have been added right up to now. One of the most frequent reactions I get from visitors to, to the centre generally is that it was emotional that it strikes some sort of a chord. And we've tried to present that in a way that is appropriate to this location and this community and the people we're talking about. The genealogy shows you how far they travelled and the amount of people that are very interested in knowing the story of their family from the Basket Island. And how far back do those records go? The genealogy records around the start of the 1800s. Are they mostly people emailing? Mostly emailing people from the States. And we have a collection of over a thousand photographs. A lot of them are the people of the island and sometimes we can provide the families with pictures. I had a very moving experience here uh, just a few months ago. A man who came in here who was on holidays and it was only as he went through the building that it dawned on him that... He was looking at some of his ancestors. He had no idea that he had any connection. He was a, 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 from the Sullivan's family on the island. And I just happened to meet him outside, and he was kind of awestruck at this. And he went back down to look at it in a completely different way. Warren, you haven't managed to trace a connection with Biden or Trump? or No, we've had no one like that. <laughs> I mean, that might help to generate the resources to develop the... <laughs> the larger library yeah, that uh, <laughs> do you ever have a problem though with people coming here you don't have enough space for somebody to sit down or they're wanting to not very often but you would have to if there was someone coming to visit the, the library you would have to book them book in it. so that there wasn't you know so anybody who wants to do that that's the best thing to do is yes, to give you a ring yeah, and, yeah, and book yeah, it in, and yeah. Book it in yeah. Tim. the number of books bear in mind there was only a population on the island of 180 people that's a tremendous output so there must have been a stroke of genius somewhere you I wonder whether a lot of it was accidental, whether it was unfortunate that a series of things... You look at Lower Shawnee Connell in South yes. Kerry, Sean O'Connell's book and the amazing collection that was made there. Yeah. But again, it largely revolved around one man and, yeah. and then well, of course, Gilarchy like coming got down a, there. got a great uh, lift with the uh, visit uh, in, the, in the early part of the uh, 20th century by these anthropologists from the uh, yeah. British Library and Museum. Yeah. And they came to study the people, their folklore <laughs> and their way of life. And I think these people realised at that time that that type of the way of life was dying out. So very fortunately, they got the people to write down an account of their lives and their folklore. The outsiders had a huge influence. Absolutely, yeah, yes, they gave it a great kick. <laughs> One of the things that you well appreciate, though, I mean, there, there is a need, isn't there, for ongoing collection, ongoing research, ongoing scholarship. As Lorcan said a minute ago, this really is the nerve centre, because without all of that, at the end of the day, it's it's another visitor attraction. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Anyone doing um, PhDs or research or MAs or something, this is a marvellous resource. Martin, you were saying you want the library to be ten times as big as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> and ten more Look on, how are you going to do that? I hope nobody in the upper job is listening to me. They'll <laughs> say he's done, done too much already. But it's an, a very important, what Tim says is quite correct. This is a very important part of it, and this is what generates a great deal of it. We try and do the best we can with what we have. We have some ideas. In fairness, a lot of credit has to be given to the OPW in terms of the investment that has been made, which is a pretty success, significant chunk yeah. of money, that it is and sees its role as being a custodian and a transmitter of this uh, heritage on behalf of the nation. 
I'm sure that we have various ideas which will see the light of day at some stage when the timing is right when they get maybe over the shock of what they've spent already. It deserves support. There's nothing in Ireland of the same standard. There's lots of centres around Ireland, but I think this is the the leader in in that field. That's a good word to end on. And now to play us out, from Beauty and the Lawn, Music and Song of the Blasted Islands, Maurice O'Dolig on accordion with a jig coonla. The Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. Pinkish toes are on the lower and warms on Blasket Wood. In our walk around the Blasket Centre in Dunquin, today's programme is recorded on July the 7th. Your comments for future use, text 083 300 3300 or 4066 7123 now, we were to be at the very impressive viewing platform high over the Blasket Sound, but because of wind particularly and rain, even though the rain has stopped at the moment, we're in the conservatory or the glass area, the southwestern end of the centre, the very end of that long spike. Former manager of the Blasket Centre here, where he served 22 years, former broadcaster with Radio Negretta and the author of the definitive history of the island, Michal de Morga. Long years ago, we walked the length to the Blasket and recorded a programme. The Sunday Tribune radio critic described it as the best radio he'd heard all year. We also had an outside broadcast from the centre, Fado Fado, and a programme on your definitive history of the island. On that walk programme, you told the terrible story the O'Kane family were living in Innistueshkert for a couple of years and they had a couple of kids with them. There was no dwelling place ever on Innistueshkert except a monastic settlement associated with uh, St. Brendan, near yeah. Dawn. And the family were living in a souterrain. Uh, that was attached to this. There was a very, very narrow entrance, but there was a chamber inside, and it was more or less weatherproof. And they were doing great there. The family were cut off from the Blasket Island. A boat used to come out and bring food to them from time to time to see that they were OK, and because it was a great community spirit. They were cut off from the mainland for a good couple of weeks because of storms and high seas. And in that period, the uh, man of the house died. The wife was a frail woman, and the man was heavy and stuck in. The body was inside, and the poor woman and the kids couldn't pull him out, so she had to dismember him and bring him out. I I don't know whether he was buried afterwards with the seagulls and the seabirds did the rest. People at that time 
in the early part of the 19th century. They were reaching out for places where they could live, like, like the Blasket Islander, because they were evicted hardly anyone living on the island until maybe the uh, second part of the 18th century from 1750 onwards and and as you know the population of Ireland increased exponentially from then on there was nice green land on the island and there could be way the, the landlords and their agents couldn't very well get into them in a way they had a semi-independent republic out there <laughs> We are looking at on Blasket Moor, on, on, on Till on Tear, the Great Blasket, the Western Island, and it's surrounded by Beganish, the Little Island, and Tirkt, Westerly, is not in our view here, but it's, it's west of us. And Inish Tushkert, the North Island, Inish Nubro, the, the island of the Quernstone, Inish Vikilan, uh, Mach Evelon's Island. Nurkan, how many of the islands were inhabited? There are archaeological remains on Inish Vikilan on Inishnabro, on the Great Blasket, and on Inishtuashkirt. Of course, you had the lighthouse on the, on the Tirath as well. Were most of those monastic? The Inishtuashkirt site is clearly monastic, as is the one on Inishtuashkirt. There are archaeological remains which remain to be excavated uh, in more detail on, on Blasket Moor, on the Clochard Gala. So there was some form of habitation going back to the early Christian period. The island harbour lies just below the village on the eastern side of the island. We're looking across to the island and that landing place. The Congested Districts Board built a breakwater and slip at this natural cove in 1910. Many of the islanders helped with this work, including Tomasa Griffin and the English scholar Robin Flower. Michal, how much has the slipway changed since 1910? They have extended the slip out a little bit. But what you're talking about, though, are minor changes. No major change has happened. Oh, no, no major no, development. No, no major changes. There is the breakwater. I think that was added after the slip was yeah. built. When it wasn't there, Dunquin fishermen, they were out there, and, and it was an, on a rough night, and they were pulling up their Nywog, and there was one Nywog left to be brought in, and there was one man at the Nywog, and next thing, a big, huge wave came and lifted the Nywog over the rocks with Onim Rune inside in it, and they thought that he was gone, dead, because he went through the, the notorious Blasket Sound, the location of lots of shipwrecks from the Armada and all, that sort of thing. And unknown to the, his people at home in Balivacardi here, he was able to stay in the Nywog, and the Nywog landed in, on the Iverar Peninsula, somewhere near Cahersaivin, and the Nywog was left there, I think, and Owen Brun walked home all the way from the other peninsula right in, and they were holding a wake for him up in <laughs> Balivacardi when he started walking down the road and they scattered like a flock of birds there should be a new pier on the island. There is a need to have safe access directly from a boat. Both the minister and the Taoiseach were on the island last year and the Taoiseach certainly was very, very clear in what he said, recognised that regardless of anything else in terms of a safe access, that you had to be able to land there safely. It's been a very long saga planning permission was secured and funding was available and that went by for various reasons but there certainly 
is a lot of focus on this uh, at the moment from a government point of view and from an OPW point of view and there's a lot of work being done at the moment. Before we finish, Michal, have you still got a blasket ambition? I would like to see a safe landing place on the island. When I started off here first in 1993, 30 years ago, I came into the centre and it was still a building site. But there was a plan there at the time to build a pier right down here at the end of the OPW oh, yeah. land here. Yeah. And uh, there, there, there is a bathing place there that was used by the Mackenzie's long ago, you know. But that was poo-pooed and uh, never came about. I think there should be um, some improvements made in Donkhine as well, you know, because... It's a difficult fair, access for a lot of They people, had yeah. one the yeah. fine weather was yeah. there. They were, they, they were able to go to the island for, yeah. for 26 consecutive days. Now, for the last 10 days, they haven't been able to go out to the island at all. But anyway, I think my main ambition for the island and Lorcan and Mihalo Kennedy and the foundation, they agree with this. I think it's about time that the island was declared a World Heritage Site. We have one across the bay in uh, the Skellig. I've been to St Kilda, which is a more, much more remote than the island. And that's a dual world, uh, world Heritage Site. You have the natural aspect of it and you, you also have the social history and the literature of it, you know. So I, I think that's the way we should go. Uh, I hope uh, the, uh, some the, the government ministers are listening to this. Very good. Thank you, Bort. <laughs> Ring his toes around the lore and wants a lasked word. The Saturday Supplements with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. Ring his toes around the lore and wants a lasked word. Today in the Blasket Centre in Dunqueen. Now in the circular reception area, a huge glass and steel installation by the artist Roisin de Butler in collaboration with Sala Koala. Five panels of, we're guessing, 15 feet by 9 feet or 5 metres by 2.5 metres. Lurkan, Finula Finley is on the online blog in the Roaring Water Bay Journal, says, this is not stained glass per se. All the surfaces are different, so it's kind of tactile as well as visual and with a whole series of different patterns. And it's an amazing depiction of a mind map of the island, in a way, mm -hmm. uh, called Unthrus. And what's amazing about it is that she used the necessity for a steel frame to support all this glass to create a whole other different picture with Nevogues, uh, something like it would have been inside it on the known pier on the island, out of that. So people stand here and gaze in wonder and make their own of it. As you say, it depicts island life based on de Butler's extensive research. The steel frame is amazing. I mean, the, the amount of steel and glass, the, the weight of everything is huge there, isn't it? I don't know how many tons in weight. It was a very difficult thing to construct, but the wonder of it is the conception of it. It's, it's a very abstract piece and that's why it elicits I think such um, strong and varied interpretations from people. And it's interesting as you say, I mean the steel work has pictures and then the glass has pictures as well so that the, you have two levels of picture. Correct, that is one is superimposed on the other and some, some, it's amazing what some people don't notice 
about it until it's pointed out to them that mm. there are two whole separate levels of illustration in the thing mm-hmm. and it's called Unthrus and you can see on it there's little, those little dots which show you the journey, say for example from the Kala over through the village down towards the beach, for, or what we take to be the beach down, down here on the right, the yellow founding member of, and chairman of the Blasket Island Foundation, Fondorik and Blasket, former principal of, of public school, Cochagrina. Patrick, how, how did Blasket people fare during the famine? From what I gather, they fared better than a lot of the people on the mainland. The blight isn't supposed to have affected the potatoes as much on the island. The piece there, Lorcan, also shows the houses, these rectangles of glass. It's a representation of the island village and the island houses, all of them bar the, shall we say, the social housing that was built by the Congested Districts Board in the early 20th century, all of them were stone-built, handmade. people mm. built them themselves, mm. but they were all oriented with their gables out to the mainland and built into the hill. It's a particular form, what they call a clochum, a I think, mm in English, so that they weren't worried about the views and they weren't worried about scenery and stuff like that. They were very functionally designed to give them as much shelter as possible. Mm-hmm. They would have all been originally thatched, of course, mm-hmm. and in later years, after the introduction of the Naivog, where they borrowed the concept from the Naivog of putting uh, canvas skins on the roofs. It was, an, an, and showing the, these rectangles on different backgrounds, as was indicates, different, different kind of landscapes that they were on, you know? That's something I don't know, actually. Uh, But that is an interpretation of it, you see. And that's the beauty of the piece, is that it raises as many questions as it does answers. Well, it's definitely abstract art, isn't it? Certainly is that. Padraig, farming, enough tillage to provide potatoes and some vegetables for the house, sheep farming, a cow or two to provide for the house. And the men spent a lot of time fishing. The women looked after the cow or milked the cow would have brought home the turf, they they dug turf, it it wouldn't be a good form, just a sod and they had a donkey and with the basket bringing home the turf. Lurkan, going back to Finola Finley who looks at a lot of stained glass says she's never before seen a, a glass and steel art installation quite like this. I haven't seen anything like it. In terms of its scale I think it is the largest stained glass installation in the country. It's a unique answer to a response by her to the story of the island. And in terms of, I suppose, the complexity of the thing, in terms of the levels of thought that went into it, there's such a variety of colour, variety of textures and motifs really in use. It's a unique piece and it's one of the glories of this building, this massive piece that you see when you you come in the door. and. Uh, People do linger, and the more they linger, I think the more they enjoy. Finley is interesting in that. She says, using thoroughly modern technology, but age-old techniques, the butler has depicted island life in a sumptuously colourful and jaw-droppingly beautiful artwork which greets visitors and sets the tone for what is to come. Gazing at it and listening to the soft cadences of staff members speaking in Irish behind me, I was transported. That's an aspect of the way the other, the centre works, that people do comment on. We're speaking the language we speak to each other. Irish is the normal, everyday language. 
That strikes people in a way that I found surprising uh, in terms of the reaction. Visitors, particularly visitors from abroad, just the idea, and even Irish people, the idea that this is normal and this is what people use mm. in a normal work setting or daily setting mm -hmm. it's something maybe Irish people associate with school or with, but they don't make that connection that this is our daily tongue around mm -hmm. here and, mm -hmm. and it's an aspect of it that we're very proud of and I am conscious that we have a certain responsibility to represent our community as it is now mm -hmm. in how we go about our business here. Patrick, the Fundurek was founded to focus attention on the Great Basket. In 1985 when the Blasket Island was uh, up for sale on the, the Wall Street Journal in America, Mihalo Canada would have seen it, got in touch with a lot of us. There was a public meeting in Don Queen School, and from there, things came together. There were about nine or ten of us involved. What was the objective? What were you trying to do? We had two main aims. One was to have an interpretive centre like this, somewhere on the mainland, so that visitors and scholars and everyone would get a, an opportunity to mm -hmm. taste what the island was all about mm -hmm. and then to have a National Historic Park on the Blasket Islands. They were so, the two main aims. So to protect the Blasket from commercial exploitation. What are the aims and the ambitions of the Foundation now? We still need to have the Blasket Island declared a National Historic Park. The piers need to be looked after both in Dunqueen and certainly on the Blasket. Need to be looked after, just putting it mildly. <laughs> We've been saying that for a lot of time. Yeah. We, a lot of time we have got promises and recently we have got, I think, good promises mm -hmm. and hopefully they'll come to fruition sooner rather than later. Lurkan, why not designate the Great Blasket without having state ownership? I mean, it's done in practically every other European country that uh, National Park is a designation rather than necessarily 100% state ownership. That's a bit above my own pay grade, but obviously I do have views in relation to it. First of all, the islands do have the highest level of conservation designation that can be found under an SAC, uh, which in fact came about in 2019. So there's a very high degree of protection. I suppose the concentration has been so, so far on doing the bits. I think the question of overall designation is a matter for national policy as to how best that's achieved. And what we're focusing on is putting together the work that needs to be done to enable in practice, I suppose, the island to be more accessible to people mm. to deal with we're, we're, we're various studies ongoing in relation to the landing facilities and also we've commissioned a, a conservation management plan uh, which we're hoping will be undertaken this mm. year and these will all guide uh, the future interventions by the state mm. in relation to it. I would say though that we're very happy to coexist and to cooperate with other owners on, on the island and mm. we do keep in contact with them <clears throat> and we have no predatory interest at all in mm. anyone's holdings mm. just that whatever we would do collectively or individually would not be detrimental to either the heritage status of the island or indeed the natural conservation of it. Mm. And that idea that Patrick mentioned there, the need to do something with the landing place, is that something that might happen imminently? I'm afraid to use the word imminently. 
but work is is being undertaken as we speak mm. in relation to that there was a high level group set up uh, between the county council the office of public works the npws uh, department of housing local mm. government and whatever earlier this year and a whole series of preparatory studies which have to be undertaken mm. Mm. has been put in place so we're just supporting that as best we can Patrick, thanks indeed for talking to us. The Blasket Centre, under the Vlascade, is open from 10 to 5.15 every day from early March to mid-November. All details on www.blasket.ie. Life on the Great Blasket also helps understanding what life was like for the much smaller communities on Ilan Tanig, Scarif and Danish, and on Valencia and Dursey, where many more people lived. The Blasket Centre uniquely, authentically and very effectively tells the story of the extraordinary literary output of Blasket Islanders, as well as day-to-day life. Also, there's an introduction to the birds, the fish and the seaweeds of this very exposed coastline. It tells its story that will appeal to a 10-year-old or a 90-year-old, those who want a quick overview, the local and the scholar, and Blasket Centre guides will also talk to you on the island itself, it's a hugely interesting and entertaining experience. On today's programme, special thanks to Lurcano Caneda, who agreed the programme, arranged the participants, and also thanks to Tomaso Ling, Shaley, Annie Lynchig, Conlo Kivon, Mirren Nikarna, Michal de Morga, Maura Niwaraku, Taigo Quillan, and Patrick Fatter. On today's programme, location sound Siobhan Lewis, post-production Colette Foley. For me, Frank Lewis, until the last Saturday in August the 26th, when we'll be following the North Kerry Story Trail. Over a week in July, local people in Lyselton, Myvan, Ballyduff, Ballylongford, Lestol, Asdee, Finuig, Tarbert and Ballybundan, discovering the treasure that is the story of their own place. Thanks for your company. Francis Jones will be with you after the news. And now at the end of the programme, before we go to a break on the 11 o'clock news, to play us out from Beauty on the Lawn, music and song of the Blasket Islands, Irene Nikana sings Broch na Carigabona. Oh, is here, Kosha Win, Kanavre Kandaut, Tanan Rhundishbanda, Gorgiller Kaumi, Nanal Lerndown, Oh, 
Oh, 